This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. The professor is traveling this week with his family in Chile on a family vacation, uh, so unfortunately he won't be with us today. Please note, I'm Mercer, representative of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion today is not tied to the office of investment products. The views of our guests are their own, not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We've got a really special show for you today, and it's very, very timely. Uh, politics is all the rage. Talks between North Korea and South Korea are taking place. There's the goal of easing tensions over there in Korea. And we've really got one of the foremost experts on both nuclear situations, missiles, um, as well as just generally the rise of the Asian superpowers, China versus the U.S., the goals, the tension that's creating. Our guest for the, the first half hour of the show is going to be Graham Allison. He's a Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He's a leading analyst on all national security defense policies. And he also has a great new book uh, that I've been talking about a lot with people on, on what is the, the most important issue for us over the next decade uh, China versus U.S. destined for war. Can America and China escape Thucydides' trap? Uh, on the second part of the show, we talk with Perth Toll, who's the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. And Perth has a background, having grown up in Beijing and in China, and has a lot of experiences, uh, you know, from her, her background there. And we're going to talk to her about the indexes she's created. But for the the first part of the show, um, Graham, welcome to our program. Thanks for joining us to, to talk about your book and your views and all and all of the research you've, you've done. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so you have been in, involved in policy on, on sort of the key issue of the day. Um, so maybe we could sort of talk at a very high level. What maybe sort of talk about your personal experiences and, and we'll get into a lot of the different dynamics of the current situation. But maybe you could talk what um, your reading of the situation is. You have this book, Destined for War. Talk about maybe the high level U.S. versus China and, and what got you down this path of, of researching the book, Destined for War. Well, it's a long story, but the short of it is uh, uh, I've been a student of international security and American national security for all of my career. I've written a book on the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, some many years ago, but I've studied nuclear weapons. I was part of the old Cold War and the Soviet Union. Uh, but over the last dozen years, uh, various of my former mentors, including Lee Kuan Yew, who was the founder and builder of Singapore, and Henry Kissinger, who's my old professor and been my colleague, you know, in the years since, kept saying, you should look more at China, you should look more at China. So the last dozen years I've been looking at the subject, and in the course of that came to the realization that what we're seeing in the rise of China and its impact on the U.S. is a version of a pattern that's really as old as history as a pattern that was identified by the father and founder of history, a fellow named Thucydides. And he wrote about uh, classical Greece and the occasion when the rise of Athens impacted Sparta and produced a catastrophic war. So in this book, I look at the last 500 years. I find 16 cases, one six, in which a rising power 
threatens to displace a ruling power, 12 of them in in war, four of them in without war. So to say that war between a rising China and a ruling U.S. today is inevitable would be a mistake. That's not correct. But to say that the odds are not good would be right. And Thucydides reminded us in particular that in this dangerous dynamic between a rising power and a ruling power, the principal danger arises from third parties' actions, third party provocateurs, in effect, who take an action not desired by either of the primary competitors, but to which one or the other feels compelled to respond, which then leads to a cycle of actions and reactions that end somewhere people don't want to go. And the great candidate for that today in the current scene is Kim Jong-un and what's happening on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, no, that was the uh, obvious thought pattern of what you were developing there is that that sounds eerily like the situation we have today. And so through that lens of what's happening in North Korea, how much is, is, is that the is that the biggest risk? We see that every day in the news with Trump and Kim Jong-un. Is that is, is that going to be is that something you're, you're worried about? And how, how do you see that playing out here? Well, if Thucydides were uh, if we could consult Thucydides, he would say, this is a pattern that we've seen before. So in the case of Athens and Sparta, there was a quarrelsome ally of Sparta's called Corinth, which is a city-state, and it got into a tangle with another party, Coursera, and then one thing led to the other, and the two parties found themselves at war. Or the more chilling analogy is 1914. So there, the assassination of an archduke, who didn't really matter at all, became the spark that produced a fire that burned down the whole of, of Europe, and at the end of which all of the great nations of Europe had been laid low. So basically, in the North Korean case today, we have with Kim Jong-un, uh, almost, uh, you know, if you were doing this in Hollywood, uh, central casting couldn't do better for a provocateur who is determined to have an ICBM that can deliver a nuclear weapon against San Francisco or Los Angeles. And now enter Donald Trump as his uh, sort of competitor who says, never is this going to happen on my watch. If the only way for me to prevent Kim Jong-un from completing the next set of ICBM tests and being able to attack San Francisco is for me to attack him, I'll do it. But uh, as we see these two trains sort of moving down, uh, you know, uh, paths to a to what will inevitably be a conclusion, or sorry, sorry, a uh, collision. Uh, we are now hoping that somehow, against hope, uh, Kim Jong Un can stop where he is now, and we can not attack him, and we'll find some resolution. But I would say this is like the situation that one saw in 1914, and indeed like a pattern that one sees repeatedly in the book uh, uh, with the 16 cases. 
So what do you think is, is Kim Jong-un's ultimate end goal through all these fighting with the U.S. and, and sort of the, the provocation is what's he looking for? What does he think he can sort of blackmail the U.S. into? And then what do, what do you see as China's reasons for sort of helping to defend essentially North Korea in, in a lot of this? Well, two good questions. So I think basically Kim Jong-un's motives are clear enough. We keep trying to make them more obscure than they are. He wants to survive and he wants his regime to survive, and he's noticed that there's a dangerous country called the U.S., which from time to time attacks countries like Saddam's Iraq or Gaddafi's Libya and overturns the government and kills the leader. And he doesn't want to be one of those. And he thinks that if he has nuclear weapons that can threaten the U.S., that there's no way the U.S. will attack him. And I would say, as much as I despise that logic, I think it has a certain uh, a, a certain credibility. On the other hand, uh, we have a China which uh, doesn't care uh, that much about Kim Jong-un and North Korea, even though it's been its traditional ally, but does care a lot about not having a unified Korea that's an American military ally on its border. So Korea abuts China in 1950 when the North Koreans provoked the war by attacking South Korea and the Americans came to the rescue. As we marched north to unify the country, and what would have been a unified country, China entered the war, and most of the Americans that were killed in the Korean War, of whom there were about 50,000, and most of the Chinese who were killed in that war, of which there were hundreds of thousands, and millions of Koreans were killed by Americans and Chinese fighting each other. So if it's hard to imagine that a little country like North Korea could take actions that at the end of which, the, uh, at the end of the action-reaction cycle, you have two nations, the U.S. and China, at war, we should look and look again at at the first Korean War, and notice they already did this once before. Yeah. What about the, the other situation that's been brewing is, is also the, 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 the situation with Taiwan and, and how the, that interaction with, with China? Is there any risk of Taiwan being also one of the catalysts? I mean, everybody's talking about North Absolutely. Korea every day. But Absolutely. It... One of the chapters in the book is called uh, From Here to War. And the purpose of the chapter is to say, here are five paths in which it's not required to, to stretch. Just easy steps on the current trajectory of events, at the end of which you could have a war between the U.S. and China. And Taiwan is a very good candidate, just as you said, so that's a good point. So basically, for anybody that watched what happened in October at the party congress at which Xi Jinping, the leader of China, was not just re-elected for another five years, but he was really coronated like a like the like a twenty first century emperor with no with no successor in sight. In that he asserts clearly in the program that he outlined at the Party Congress that China is not about to become a democracy, as Westerners think of it. It wants to be a party led state in which the party dominates everything, 
and in which citizens live within a party framework. Well, in Taiwan, you now have 25 million people who have developed a democracy and who have a market economy and who live their lives the way they would like to do. So the formula that is the ambiguous sort of umbrella that's managed to prevent this issue from coming to a head has been the fiction that both Taiwan and China subscribe to and we endorse, which is really there's one country and two systems. It just happens they both disagree about which the country is. The Taiwanese think it's a country that would be, in effect, a reflection of Taiwan, and the Chinese think it's a China that will incorporate Taiwan. So there's no question whatever in anybody's mind that if Taiwan were to try to establish itself as an independent country, China will fight it to prevent that from happening. And if the U.S. should be supporting Taiwan, then it would find itself in a war with U.S. We're talking with Graham Allison, author of a book, Destined for War, uh, basically the, the, the discussion of China versus U.S. and the, the rise of China and how that's threatening the U.S. in some ways and how you know, uh, the Thucydides trap, uh, the example of 16 times in history, this led to uh, this ri rising power versus the, the, established, uh, the established country. Um, Graham, when you, when you think about just China's rise, I mean, what's impressed you the most? You had a, a huge uh, section in the book talking about just the the huge growth rates of China and, and how it's, it's come along to be really one of the, the, already one of the sort of leaders for the global economy. But maybe talk about, where, where you talked about sort of concept like the purchasing power parity of how much they can buy with their, for their military might given, you know, where their economy is on a PPP basis compared to just the general way we, we talk about them as the second largest economy in U.S. dollars. Talk about what's impressed you the most about China and why, why where you see that economy going. Well, I, I spent five days in China just uh, coming back the day before Christmas, talking, because everybody in China uh, is very interested in the argument about Thucydides' trap, since Xi Jinping talks about it a lot. And you can't, every time you go to China, you have to be blown away. Uh, as I say in the book, uh, I have a first chapter called The Rise of China. Most people in the U.S. haven't been watching, but never before has a country risen so far, so fast, on so many different dimensions. I quote former Czech president Václav Havel's good line. He says, things have happened so fast, we haven't yet had time to be astonished. So uh, one dramatic example I can see looking out my office here at Harvard right now. There's a bridge that goes across the river between the Kennedy School, where my office is, and the business school across the Charles River. That bridge has been under renovation for now 48 months. It's not yet over. It's three times over budget. It's uh, been delayed four times. There's a bridge I drove across in Beijing last week called the Sanyang Bridge. It's uh, got twice as many traffic lanes as the bridge, the, the Harvard Bridge. Uh, they decided to renovate it the same way Harvard is doing in 2015. How long did it take for them to complete the project? And the answer is 43 hours. 43, so 48 months and 43 hours. hours. So you can go to YouTube and actually put in a 43-hour China Bridge or Sanyang Bridge and see the video speeded up of this uh, of this project. 
So everything from the airport to the roads to the subways to the ports to the uh, hotels to the skyscrapers to the behaviors of the companies. When you're seeing this, anybody who hasn't seen China in its face and in its space has either not been looking or they should, you know, wake up. The, the U.S. I, we I, talk about an infrastructure package that maybe that maybe Trump will get behind, but the infrastructure you talk about, sort of how many high-speed rail lines that they have in China being yeah. sort of more than we, the rest of the world we combined. Have, we have we have one high-speed rail line that we've been re- building since 2010. It goes from San Francisco to Los Angeles, 500 miles. It was supposed to be done in 2017. They then said, no, oh, how about 2029? And many people think it'll never happen. How many miles of high-speed rail did China lay in that same 10 years when we didn't finish the 500 miles? The answer is 16,000. Yeah. So if, 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 I, if we had a high-speed rail going from Boston to Washington, I could get on the, on the train and go at 180 miles an hour and be in Washington in an hour and 40 minutes. So just the, the, the whole conception is, is in, the, in the course that I teach, I have a, a quiz I give to people, and I give a short version in the book. It says, when could China become number one? And I have 46 indicators, key indicators, but in the book I just give a dozen. So the largest middle class, the biggest uh, producer of smartphones, the fastest supercomputers, uh, the largest a national economy. And uh, so students have to guess in the course. They have to write down which year, 2030, 2040, not in my lifetime. Then I show them a second slide, which is already, all those things already happened. Most people miss the fact. But the big takeaway from the IMF World Bank meeting in 2014 was that China now has the largest economy in the world, measured by what both the CIA and the IMF regard as the best single yardstick for measuring the size or comparing economies, which is purchasing power parity. So if you're buying airplanes or drones or bridges or subways or airports or whatever, using the currency of China in China today you can buy more stuff than you can buy in the U.S. Yeah. You, you know, you talk a lot about destined for war, uh, and, and there's, there's obviously more than just military types of warfare. And, and you know, one of, the, one of the examples in the book you gave is, you know, they have the fastest supercomputer around, and cyber warfare is another, you know, hot topic of the day, and, and also the protection for cybersecurity. Any sense of, is, do you think the cyber warfare is, is a much higher chance to break out than sort of actually military shooting wars? Uh, or, you know, the other topical political discussion is trade wars with, with Trump and is he going to become more protectionist and that may be sort of a catalyst for, for, for further wars. But any commentary on those two types of well, wars I'd from the cyber both, war? I mean, cyber war is ongoing. That is, if you take, if this includes cyber theft, uh, as I described in the book, I mean, the Chinese theft of U.S. intellectual property is the greatest you know, theft ever theft job ever in history. So basically, uh, several trillion dollars worth of intellectual property have been stolen. And in the Chinese uh, mode of operation, you know, what we call R&D, research and development, 
uh, they call RD&T, and the T stands for theft. So if I can steal the design for an F-35, the American Advanced, advanced uh, Fighter, rather than invest in uh, research and development, I start with a great advantage. And actually, if you look at the rollout of the Chinese version of the F-35, they're almost able to deploy the plane faster than we can. So basically, I not only steal the stuff, but because I make things faster, I can produce them. So I would say you're seeing that across the spectrum. And now in the economic realm, again, economic uh, conflict or war is a vague term. Do we have, a, in effect, an ongoing uh, uh, competition between the U.S. and China in the economic realm? Yes, we do. And are the terms of trade, or the, does China want to, as, as mercantilist and protectionist on a, a national economy as it can get away with? Yes, it does. And in fact, if you look at the program that Xi Jinping laid out at the 19th Party Congress, by 2025, so they set, like a business, they set specific objectives on specific dates. By 2025, they mean to dominate 10 key industries that they identify, which include uh, advanced information industries, including uh, quantum computing, uh, AI, and big data. Uh, by 2035, they mean to be the leader in innovation in every domain. And by 2049, they mean to be the global superpower. That's the plan they lay out. Now, again, between here and there, there are lots of uh, potential slips and a lot of obstacles, a lot of challenges. And that's it's what we say, well, okay, well, I don't really believe this is going to happen. I hope that's not going to happen. If you look at the performance of China in the 21st century, the slowest year of growth they had after the great financial crisis in 20, 2007 and eight, the slowest year of growth was more than twice the fastest year of growth of the U.S. economy. So basically, this is a, this is a, as I quote Lee Kuan Yew in the book, he says, Americans are going to find this extremely difficult because China is destined to be the largest player in the history of the world. There's yeah. four times as many Chinese as there are Americans. So if they're only one quarter as productive, they'll have an economy as big as ours. And why should they only be one quarter as productive? No, absolutely. So, I mean, you, we could go on for a very long time on this, and I know we have you for a limited amount of time. Um, it, the, given the, this, you know, the, the seriousness of these issues in terms of just, uh, you know, you're, you're such an expert on the, the U.S.-Cuban missile crisis as well, and the amount of times that we got perilously close to that nuclear war actually breaking out, but, but by accident, it didn't happen. What are, you know, you talked about there's 16 times that Thucydides' trap occurred, 12 of them, it led to war, four of them didn't. What are these four situations that you think, you know, sort of the, the, the leaders were able to do that kept them away? What do you, do you see any of those signs that were able to, to draw on lessons, or, or do you think it's more like that 75? percent of the time what what should we learn from well i'm i'm i mean the, the purpose of the book is to to lay out a pretty stark diagnosis of the situation 
in order for us to recognize danger, because if you know that you're going into a dangerous domain or terrain, then you, you should change and adapt your behavior. So extremely dangerous conditions require extreme imagination and extreme adaptability. Two cases of, this, of the four success stories that I think often offer good lessons for us are first, the rise of the U.S. to challenge Britain at the beginning of the 20th century. So as Germany was rising closer to home to challenge Britain in the decades before 1914, so too under Teddy Roosevelt was the U.S. rising to become first the dominant power in our hemisphere and then ultimately beyond. So in that case, the British were brilliant in adapting to a to the to necessity. And in particular, in adapting, they distinguished between what they thought was vital for them, on the one hand, and what they thought was simply vested, or the way things had been in the past, on the other. So vital to Britain was Canada as part of the empire, which was crucial to Britain. So they, the sun and the, the, the empire in which the sun never set was Canada, uh, India, and South Africa, and, and Britain's other colonial holdings. So they were very concerned that the U.S. not threaten Canada, but when Teddy Roosevelt threatened war over a territorial dispute in Venezuela, they thought, is that really something that we want to fight about? Are we that concerned? No. And so they adapted and they adjusted. And they did so so adroitly that when World War I eventually came, uh, because of the German-British competition, uh, the Americans immediately became the, the lifeline for Britain, first the supply line and the finance line, and then ultimately the ally. So there's a lot of lessons there. The second case that's very instructive is the Cold War. So the Cold War is uh, worth studying carefully. There you had a rising Soviet Union, which hard as it is to believe now, appeared to people in 1955 or 60 or 65 or 70 about to overtake the U.S. So they had a surging economy under their command and control system. And if you, uh, as, as I say, it's so hard to believe that I quote in the book uh, Paul Samuelson's economics, uh, introductory economics textbook, the 1964 edition, in which he says, oh, in the, in the 70s, the Soviet Union's going to overtake the U.S. economy. So in any case, uh, in those conditions, uh, rather than war, the U.S. invented a strategy for so-called Cold War. It was a complicated strategy. It emerged over about four years of fits and starts, but it included containing the Soviet expansion, included deterring any attacks upon us, and it included undermining the Soviet Union by basically encouraging the contradictions within the, the form of government that they had. And we persisted with that strategy for four decades until the point of victory. So again, I think there's a lot of lessons to be drawn from that example, mainly 
of the extent of imagination and adaptability that was reflected in what ultimately became the Cold War strategy that was then followed by Democrats and Republicans alike over this, you know, four decades. Well, we, we appreciate you spending time with us. I hope uh, the government is listening to you and that you are advising them and taking your, your research and, and, and book seriously. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the show. Again, uh, Graham Allison is the author of a, a book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Through Cities Trap? Uh, Professor Allison, thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.